Thank you very much for that introduction and thank you to everybody for coming this evening and particular thanks to all the staff who've been helping me today, looking, uh, guiding me around and showing me all the, the wonderful collections. It's been an ambition of mine to come to Canberra uh, for a long time and to see your, your wonderful collections and I'm fulfilling that uh, today. It's been, it's been great. So, um, the, the picture the, behind me is of the quayside in Greenock, which is the location, the, the, the embarkation port from which a lot of Scots uh, left. Route map for this evening then. Um, the original subtitle of the lecture was simply Snapshots of Emigration to Australia, but I'd like to take a wider lens and root the Australian narrative in the context of Scottish emigration per se, um, in particular looking at uh, North America, which uh, for most, most of the, the two centuries I'm concerned with um, absorbed the vast majority of emigrants. But I'm going to concentrate particularly on the 20th century and the period after the Second World War because there's a quite a bit of oral history coming into the talk. So the, the structure, um, it's a comparative context and it's a concentration on the 20th century. That means that the 19th century narrative, which was promised in the flyer, will have to take a back seat because otherwise you'd be here all night. And I'll begin by sketching in um, very briefly some of the perceptions of opportunity and exile among 19th century Scottish emigrants to Australia, but we'll pass fairly quickly on to the, the later period. And in passing on to that later period, I'd like to really compare two periods in respect of emigrants' uh, motives <coughs> excuse me, and experiences. Um, the interwar era, the, the 1920s and 30s, and the uh, post-Second World War era of the 1950s and 60s. I think there are some interesting parallels between those two periods. And I'll approach the uh, comparison mainly by introducing you to the voices of a cast of characters whose testimony, I think, illustrates some of the themes of opportunity and exile, which provides the overarching um, context for the talk. And um, I'm not an oral historian. I'm a historian who uses oral testimony. Uh, mixes that with documentary sources and particularly for the earlier part of the 20th century I'm, I'm mixing it mixing oral testimony with m many more documentary sources because of course um, I don't have many talking heads for that period. So um, exile and opportunity in 19th century Scotland and Australia, 20th century motives and expectations looking at comparisons and then um, looking at the, the wider context through the voices of um, emigrants. So finally, in, in, in setting the context, in, in interrogating the, the testimony in, in terms of scene setting, can I flag up maybe a few generic questions that you might like to uh, think about in, in a question and answer session and as you listen to the individual case histories? Um, the first point I've already mentioned, that is um, identifying similarities and differences between the two periods. And within that comparative framework, um, some of the specific questions might be, for example, were the emigrants' decisions the product of austerity or prosperity, backgrounds of austerity or prosperity? Um, then next, how significant were government subsidies in shaping the decision, first of all, to emigrate full stop, and then in shaping the actual destination? Then, how far did the rhetoric and the reality correspond? Um, how far did the reality correspond to the rhetoric when they actually arrived um, at their destinations? 
Um, how do we measure success and disappointment in a self-selecting group? And that's a particular issue, of course, with oral testimony and indeed with, with much written testimony. And what determined um, the variety of migration? I've, on the bullet point there, I've got um, settlement, sojourning and uh, migrancy. What determined whether people stayed permanently, returned home or became serial migrants, restless wanderers on the face of the earth, um, like, uh, like Cain in the, in the Bible? Uh, what's the relationship um, between um, uh, identity and identifications? Uh, I'll, I'll maybe unpack that a little bit more later. Um, identity as something that is maybe more crucial and identification as something that's maybe more cosmetic. And then um, finally, uh, what about the impact of technology on migration and on attitudes? Um, what's the relationship, for instance, between homesickness and modern instant communication? Do, do people actually become more homesick because of things like Skype and the internet? I think possibly uh, they do. So that's the route map and some of the questions we might uh, think about as we proceed. So first of all then, setting the context, um, spend a little time on uh, Scottish emigration to Australia in the 19th century. Um, the salient features of emigration to Australia were the three points mentioned there. It was a late starter, the outflows were sporadic, and there was more government involvement than in, its, um, and in, the, than in the North American equivalent. So it started much later, as for obvious reasons, than the North American equivalent. It wasn't a steady movement, it was sporadic rather than steady, and it was marked by much more government involvement um, than transatlantic emigration. And if you look at the statistics, of almost two million Scots who emigrated in the century before 1914, approximately 13% came to Australia, compared with 26% to Canada and 41% to the United States. Um, the United States kicked in as the favourite destination of Scots after 1847. With, with British emigrants as a whole, it was, it was much earlier, or a decade, 15 years earlier or so. Um, now, interest may, in, in Australia may have been more sporadic not just because of distance, but because would-be emigrants received more mixed messages and more caveats about Australia than about any other destination. They also received more stereotypes, I think, um, stereotypes of a scorched land that was um, heaving with convicts, swarming with convicts. And that was, uh, you know, in a lot of the 19th century British uh, publicity. Okay, um, was it opportunity or was it exile? Obviously the convicts were exiles, although Scots actually didn't feature very prominently in that category. They did feature very prominently among the early entrepreneurs and administrators and explorers. Um, you, Mark, you mentioned uh, the, the Leslie brothers earlier. Well, um, they, did, they, they, they were Scottish pastoralists, um, the Leslie brothers from, from Aberdeenshire. The picture there is of Patrick Leslie, who was the first of the brothers to come out to Australia. And the picture on the right is of the family estate at Wart Hill in Aberdeenshire, taken about six weeks ago. Um, perhaps the state of the estate suggests it was a good idea that they came to Australia. <laughs> Well, um, the Leslie brothers played a big part in developing commercial sheep farming in northern New South Wales and what became southern Queensland. And they were the sons of big landed families. But Australia also attracted tenant farmers and farm servants from much lower down the social scale. Men whose security and prospects ambitions were being threatened by structural changes in agriculture in Scotland, in land management and in farming practices in Scotland. 
Um, far more of them, it, it has to be said, went, went to Canada. The, the vast bulk of them went to Canada. But some were attracted to Australia by the assistance schemes, the so-called bounty schemes that were on offer intermittently uh, from the 1830s. Not the Leslie brothers, they came out uh, independently. Um, the other, uh, the Leslie brothers didn't come out on their own. They, they, uh, one of the reasons that, that they were interested in Australia was because there was a kind of network of Northeast Scots who had interests out here. Um, Manar and Logie were two neighbouring estates to the Leslies. Um, I must say their, their um, stately homes are in a slightly better state of repair than the, the Leslie property. Um, Hugh Gordon of Manar came out to the same area of, um, of Queensland and um, the Elphinstone or the Elphinstone Dalrymples of Logie, um, one of them accompanied Patrick Leslie. Uh, no, sorry, Walter and George Leslie, out in 1839. So those are the estates back in Scotland. Another um, family that uh, had pastoral interests in the same area were the um, Leith Hayes of uh, Leith Hall, um, in, again, another estate in we uh, Western Aberdeenshire. All these estates are really in the same little corner of the, of the county. And um, Hugh Gordon of Manar came out, but so did a, an, another Gordon from an, another part of Aberdeenshire, um, Riney, which is a little bit further west, um, which is, I don't know if you can tell that from the picture, but it's a pretty bleak upland part um, of, the, of the county. Um, but those guys came out mostly in the 1830s um, and 1840s. Now we move on um, just to another dimension of the story. We've got the tenant farmers and the farm servants who were coming out because of unacceptable social and economic changes in Scottish agriculture. We've got the sons of big landed families who were coming out very much for adventure. But we also have in the same era um, people who were coming out mainly from the highlands of Scotland as a result of distressing economic conditions, particularly potato famine. I think everybody's heard of the Irish potato famine. Not everybody's heard of the potato famine in Scotland, in the, in the Highlands, that was really um, a, a smaller version of what happened in Ireland. Actually, two potato famines, one in the 1830s and a much more devastating one um, in the 1840s. I mean, Australia's bounty emigrants from Scotland in the, uh, from, from the 1830s to the 1850s were more likely to come from the highlands of Scotland. Um, the potato famine had brought uh, great hardship in those, those two decades. And most particularly, the, the biggest, in, well, there were, there were about 5,000 came in the, the late 30s, but the, most, the more notable influx, I think, was in um, the years 1851 to 1858, when an organization called the Highland and Island Emigration Society sponsored the removal of about uh, another 5,000 Highlanders, particularly from the Isle of Skye um, out to uh, Victoria. The, the idea, or New South Wales and Victoria, the idea was that they would replace the labor which had uh, skedaddled off uh, to the, the gold fields. Um, now, arguably, uh, many of those Highland emigrants were what we might call economic exiles. And the pictures that you've got on the screen there, the top left is of a place called Bororeg in the Isle of Skye, um, Lord MacDonald's estate, cleared in 1852, um, a, a cleared, uh, the, the one on the top right, um, a, a ruined cottage, possibly people who were victims of clearances. And then the three pictures at the bottom, sort of iconic um, images of enforced Highland emigration, Thomas Fyard's painting, The Last of the Clan, um, the image in the middle is called Loch Arbor No More. The, the, the woman is distraught at leaving her homeland. And the, the image on the right is called um, um, Coronach in the Backwoods, and that's actually from, from Canada. 
Um, as I said, uh, one of the reasons that the Highland and Island Emigration Society brought all these Highlanders out to Australia was to, in the hope that the, the emigrants would replace the labour that had gone off to the, the, the gold fields. Um, during that decade of gold fever from 1851, about 90,000 Scots uh, came to Australia. Now, that was 15% of the British total, and that was more than the percentage of Scots in the, the British population. So the Scots had a particular interest in uh, searching for gold. And Scots were alerted to um, opportunities in Australia by uh, battalions of recruitment agents um, who first appeared in the 1830s, um, John Dunmore Lang being sort of prominent among them. And throughout the, the, the succeeding decades, um, they competed with the similar activities of agents who canvassed uh, for Canada, the United States, and New Zealand. And as we'll see when we get on to the test oral testimony in a minute, um, that the, the um, role of recruitment agents continue to be very important uh, well into the uh, 20th century. And that's, I don't have, this is, uh, I, would I would like, to, uh, while I'm in Australia, to see if I can source some Australian posters um, of, of a similar nature, but all these are from my Canadian um, collection. And if you were thinking about emigration in the, in the period from about 1870 to the First World War, and you went to a post office or a railway station or any sort of public place, you might well see posters like that. Um, well, actually, some of those are from the 20th century, from the post-war period. But, you know, uh, looking at the, the top left one, for example, even the, 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 um, the farmyard looks well scrubbed and there's never a cloud in the sky. And, of course, that was a big draw to British people who lived under grey skies uh, the whole time. Well, it seemed to, anyway. So I think, you know, uh, all the different destinations were competing uh, for uh, recruits, and um, these recruitment agents were active from very early in the, the 19th century. Well, as I mentioned at the start, um, I'd like to compare roughly the, the two post-war generations. I've just given you a very brief background of 19, the 19th century story. I could spend several hours talking about the 19th century, but... Um, as I say, I don't want to keep you here all night. So I want to move on now to the, to the 20th century and compare roughly the two post-war generations, although I should say that my definition of generations is fairly elastic because my Australian illustrations, as well as some of my North American ones, um, tend to come from the 1960s and 1970s rather than from the immediate uh, post-war period. Well, why choose these two periods? I think there are interesting parallels. Um, both followed on from devastating wars when people were looking for new starts. Both were characterized by government-sponsored relocation schemes in a way that had never been the case in previous generations. Thirdly, both were shaped, um, third bullet point, both were shaped by innovations in communications technology um, that affected the way that opportunities were mediated. In other words, you've got newsreel film, you've got um, movie film, you've, you've got modern technology employed in, in, in the recruitment, and then affected also, at least from the 1950s, by um, the mechanisms by which emigrants were able to take advantage of those opportunities. Um, you know, I'm thinking there of the transition from um, ship to air travel. Now, the 1920s was a key decade in the annals of Scottish emigration in particular. 
That was the decade when the loss of population from Scotland exceeded the natural increase of the population. So in other words, by the, in the, the 1931 census, there were fewer people in Scotland than there had been in 1921. And that was because so many people had emigrated. And it was an, a, an, an exodus, a hemorrhage, that caused huge concern right across the political spectrum, from the far left, from the communists to the, the far right. The 1930s, of course, saw things move into different gear um, after the Depression. People were coming back and certainly were not able to move out of Scotland. So that was the, the period of the, uh, after the First World War. Then if we fast forward to the period after the Second World War, at the end of the 1940s, emigration from Britain as a whole was again taking place against an economic backdrop of austerity, of rationing that went on until the middle of 1954, um, of ongoing war weariness and of housing shortages. Uh, the Suez Crisis in 1956 also seems to have been part of a, a cumulative sense of disillusionment and restlessness, um, a sense that Britain was, was losing its role in the, in the world. So those were the negative factors that brought people out. Conversely, of course, there was also the lure of high wages and the lure of a standard of living that promised immigrants access to amenities that would be well beyond their uh, reach if they'd stayed at home. So that's the background. Scottish emigration in the 20th century, comparisons and contrasts of those two periods after each of the, the wars. So if we think of the um, interwar period, first of all, and then I'll, I'll come on to the uh, later period, later. Um, the two very, very elderly interviewees to whom I'm going to introduce you now demonstrate, I think, um, some of the broader um, themes. Um, they're both women, which is in itself is interesting, which tells you something about uh, life expectancy. This is um, Morag Bennett, who was 91 when I interviewed her over the phone. Um, so the quality of what you're going to hear in a minute isn't, isn't very good because it was a, a phone interview. Um, with, with just my office phone. Um, the other lady whom you, from whom you'll hear was uh, interviewed three weeks before her 101st birthday. So she was, a, she was my star interviewee. Um, now, Morag here, was uh, I, I photographed her at her home in British Columbia in uh, 2007. I didn't interview her then, but I did, I'd interviewed her earlier. Now, in April 1923, at the age of 10, along with her parents and six siblings, um, Morag emigrated from Benbecula, the Isle of Benbecula in the Outer Hebrides, to Alberta in Canada. And the family was among 291 emigrants on the Canadian Pacific liner, the SS Marloch, that you see up the, 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 top, of the, pic, the top picture there. And the, the Marloch was one of two um, famous Canadian Pacific ships, which took around 600 emigrants away from the Hebrides in a single week in April 1923. The other one, the better known one, um, is the, the Marloch, is, is, the, is the Metagama, sorry, the bottom one. And it's an exodus that's, that's become very well known. And the, the next three slides are just images from actually the embarkation of emigrants on the Metagama. Um, this is emigrants waiting on the quayside at Stornoway in the Isle of Lewis. But that's my favorite picture from that, um, that story because it, it shows you how, um, how public an event it was. That, that, that's the crowd that gathered on the quayside at Stornoway uh, to see the emigrants uh, leave. Well, why, wh why did this come about? Um, the, the first point to make, I think, is that from the 1860s, the vast majority of Scottish emigrants were coming not from the Highlands, but from the urban industrial central belt, from the, the area around Glasgow and, and, and Edinburgh, particularly around, behind Glasgow. 
But it was still the hemorrhage from the highlands and islands that continued to have the biggest impact on public imagination and public awareness, not least in the 1920s, and most especially in that uh, year of 1923, which was the peak year of interwar departures um, from the country. And now, at first glance, it might seem that those highland emigrants were conforming to the long-standing stereotype of exile. Um, the state of the Highlands after the First World War was very similar to its state after the end of the Napoleonic Wars um, a century earlier. Uh, there was the spectre of famine, there was severe economic crisis, um, there was financial assistance to emigrants, and there was active work by recruitment agents. And Morag Bennett, when I spoke to her, was very emphatic that there was no future in the Highlands. What she actually said was um, there, is, there was nothing in Ben Becula for the family. That's Ben Beckula. She, she went back a few years um, just before I interviewed. She said there still wasn't anything for them. <laughs> so I can say that with safety out here because presumably there's nobody from Ben Beckula. I've been to Ben Beckula. I think it's quite nice, but I, I don't know if I'd like to live there. Um, on top of that, on top of the economic problems, there was the psychological impact of the loss of the troop ship Ayalair. Does that mean anything to anybody? One, one or two people know what it is. Yeah. Um, if, you were, if I was in Lewis and said that, uh, every hand would, would go up, because it's still very much remembered in the islands. Uh, what happened was that in the early hours of the morning, at 2 a.m. on New Year's Day 1919, um, the, the troop ship Ayalair, which was bringing back men who'd survived throughout the, 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 the First World War, went down, uh, was, was wrecked within sight of Stornoway Harbour. Um, the, uh, the men were, were rushing to get home to be reunited with their families uh, for New Year. Um, 205 were drowned and 175 of those men were from the Isle of Lewis and the families which <clears throat> the family members who'd been expecting to celebrate New Year's Day with their families had gathered on the shore saw the ship wrecked and spent actually spent New Year's Day pulling the bodies out of the sea now that had a huge huge psychological impact on the Isle of Lewis and <clears throat> many of the em <clears throat> excuse me some of those who emigrated later uh, said that thank you um, they they went, or they, their, their, their um, relatives said to me that they went because they couldn't stand being in Lewis thank you, and meeting day by day the uh, widows and the children and the parents of those who had not survived. It was, a, it was survivor's guilt. So some of them actually uh, emigrated away from haunting memories. So there was that negative sense of, of why emigration was taking place from the Hebrides. But if we scratch a little bit below the surface, we find also a new attitude among some of those Hebridean emigrants, um, an unprecedented sense that emigration didn't have to be exile. It could be the door to a better life. It could be opportunity and not exile. Well, why was that the case? I mean, what had changed after the war? Well, I think the war itself had broadened the horizons of the islanders, particularly those who'd served um, in the forces. They were able to compare the subsistence lifestyles back in the islands with um, apparently better conditions elsewhere. And they'd begun to realize that some of the problems in, in the Hebrides were simply the result of the sheer physical limitations of their um, environment. This is one of my favorite slides. Uh, because there was clearly ambivalence among the, the emigrants. And I think the ambivalence is reflected rather obviously in the faces, the expressions on the faces, and the, when you compare them, the expressions with the, the placard. Um, the positive sentiments on the placard say it's the crofter's trail to happiness. And then you look at the expressions and you think, well, were they really uh, all that happy? 
Okay, we'll move on. That's at Greenock. Um, I want to introduce you to two more characters uh, in, 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 in try and unpack this idea of the Crofters' trail to happiness. Um, this is William Knoxon, who was Agent General for Ontario. He recruited the Metagamas passengers. And that's um, Andrew MacDonnell, who was the creator and director of the Scottish Immigrant Aid Society, which is an organisation that he uh, created in order to um, get the, the, the passengers on the Marloch out to Alberta. Now, William Knoxon and... and um, uh, Andrew MacDonnell, were the successors of the 19th century agents, the guys whom I mentioned earlier. And they were joined in the Outer Hebrides in 1923 and 1924 by William Stillman, who was a, the chief clerk of the Australian government's Migration and Settlement Department. And he was sent up uh, from London. Now, I don't have a photograph of William Stillman, but I'd like one. <laughs> so that's, that's a hint. <laughs> so if anybody has a photo of William Stillman, I would like one. Um, included in the New South Wales Bicentennial Oral History Collection here at um, the National Library is an interview with Angus MacDonald from North Uist in the Outer Hebrides. North Uist is just north of Benbecula. Um, the interview was conducted in 1987 by Paula Hamilton when Angus was 82. Now, he didn't mention William Stillman by name, but he was clearly referring to him when he recalled how uh, he, Angus, had been lured out to New South Wales in 1923 by the combination of an agent's visit to Loch Maddy, um, the advance of his fare, the £33, and the encouragement of his father. And for Angus, um, emigration was clearly opportunity and not exile. Well, now, why did you decide to, decide to come to Australia? Oh, the adventure. A local man came up, asked to see up to the Loch Maddy, on the Department of Immigration, of Australia House, and I signed up to come out. Oh, I said it was good. It was an up-and-coming country. It was an up-and-coming country. He said it was just named I don't have any prospects of what he saw of it, but it's going to be a place of the future. Um, William Stillman was not actually a local man. He, he, he didn't belong to Loch Maddy. He'd gone up specially from London to Loch Maddy. So there's a, there's a slight error there, but that's how um, Angus remembered it. Um, agents like um, Stillman and Noxon and MacDonnell had a new weapon in their canvassing arsenal, and that was a weapon that also helped to soften the Highlanders' traditional hostility and antagonism to emigration. And that weapon was the availability of unprecedented state subsidies to selected emigrants who would go to the four dominions, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa. Um, subsidies provided through the Empire Settlement Act of 1922. Now, farm workers and domestic servants would be given financial assistance um, of around 75%, and sometimes assistance with training and uh, land settlement. And virtually all the emigrants on the Marloch and the Metagama who went to different parts of Canada in 1923 um, were assisted under the Empire Settlement Act, and um, Angus MacDonald, in coming to New South Wales, was assisted under the same uh, legislation. And the reason that the Highlanders felt more comfortable with the Empire Settlement legislation than with other um, charitable assistance in the 19th, such as the um, Highland and Island Emigration Society in the 19th century, was because it was applied across the whole of the UK. They didn't feel that they were being singled out for special charity, as charitable cases. It was something that was applied right across the board, and that made them a little bit more comfortable with it. 
Okay, um, having glimpsed then the um, general motives and expectations of Highland emigrants and some of the mechanisms like the Empire Settlement Act that facilitated their going, let's return briefly to Morag Bennett for a, an excerpt from her recollections of what it was actually like uh, to settle in Clan Donald out in northern Alberta. So this is back to the point of, you know, did the ideal and the real coincide? Did the rhetoric and the reality match up? And in this clip, she's reflecting in old age about um, how hard it must have been for her parents. I mean, she's reflecting about other things as well. Uh, it's a long clip, so I think I'll probably cut it a little bit short because I say I don't want to keep you here till, till midnight. Um, so I'll just play a little bit of it. Oh, I remember the blasting of the foghorn, for sure. I can still hear it. And, of course, we didn't... We were put in the staterooms, you know, to sleep and that. And uh, we never had running water in Rinbeckel, as you know. It was just a well. And we didn't know what the bowl and the taps and all this sort of things were, you know. Oh, well, you know, I was young and I thought it was great, especially the winter. I loved the snow, you know, big drifts and playing in the snow. But... You must remember, I was just 10 years old, but my parents, my mother brought uh, a few plants from Benbecula, and of course she didn't know that the winter was so cold, and they all froze the first frost in the, in the winter. The houses were very small, because they all had big families, that was the idea, to bring out the big families and get the prairies settled. Mm -hmm. And uh, the houses were just sort of like a square box and not insulated at all. So you can imagine. That, that's, uh, that last point about the houses not being insulated uh, intrigues me because, of course, in Australia, the, house, the, the tin um, hostels weren't insulated, but the problem wasn't that they were freezing cold, it was that they were roasting hot. So we'll maybe come back to that. I actually got a comment from a, a hostel dweller a little bit later on. Um, as I say, I, I'll, I'll, I won't play the whole of Morag's point. Um, her, her, in, her last point about the, the, um, the Russians having the good farms and knowing how to farm uh, is, is an interesting one because, of course, on the prairies, there was this um, tendency to have ethnic settlement. And if the Hebrideans had been willing to talk to their Russian neighbours who'd come from the steppes, they might have uh, fared better as, as farmers. There are other reasons why they didn't succeed. Anyway, Hebrideans are only part of the story. Um, I don't have any interviews from the main supply area, which is the um, economic wasteland of Scotland's urban industrial uh, central belt. I, don't, I haven't got any interviews in, in my collection from that. But the National Library's collection uh, from the New South Wales uh, bicentenary does. And uh, this, the one I'm, I might play, it didn't play very well in the, the practice, so it might not be loud enough, and if, if it isn't, I'll just move straight on. But it's from somebody called, um, well, Jim Comerford. Um, and Jim Comerford's father's experience as an emigrant to Australia uh, was much more negative. And his decision to leave Scotland in 1921 was triggered, so his son recalled later, by his political militancy and alleged victimisation during the miners' lockout uh, that year. So he came partly because of bitterness, but he wasn't, bitterness wasn't the only ingredient in an apparently hasty decision, because Jim Comerford had worked as a miner in the United States and Nova Scotia for a short time after war service. So he was one of these Rolling Stone-type uh, migrants. Like many of his countrymen, he was very comfortable with playing the emigration card wherever it took him. So we'll see if it plays. Um. He was a member of the Independent Labour Party. And during the lockout, 
He was in the local pub selling the Independent Labour Party's paper, the Glasgow Forward. The mine manager was there, and uh, the old man breasted up to him and said, would you like to go buy the forward, Dave? And uh, as he told it to me, the manager spun round him and said, you bastard, you'll never work here again. And he didn't. That's what he was victimised for. And uh, <coughs> uh, so we came out here. I'm glad he was victimised. Would he have left Scotland if he hadn't been, do you think? I'm not sure. <coughs> see, there was going to see <coughs> the period in America, the period in Nova Scotia, and if we <coughs> move forward a bit, the move from here to New Zealand later on, uh, possibly, but my mother was uh, <coughs> such a thrusting type, I don't think she'd have been content to have stayed in Scotland either. The state it was in after the end of the First War. And the state it was in, you probably can't see from the thumbnail pictures at the bottom, but that's some of the housing conditions in Scotland um, in the interwar period. So, um, th and, and that, ex that experience of going to several locations was by no means uncommon. Now, I say I don't have any of my own interviewees who came from the Central Belt, but I do have a star performer from the southwest of Scotland. This is the lady whom I mentioned earlier, and it's an indica she indicates that emigration was uh, very much an adventure uh, triggered by personal networks and uh, mutual encouragement. And this is my lady who was 101 three, three weeks after I interviewed her. Um, in 1930, she emigrated to New York as a domestic servant. And that, in the first place, reminds us that although the official spotlight was on the Dominions, uh, large numbers of people went to the United States. The U.S. continued to be a very powerful magnet, uh, despite the state's increasingly stringent uh, gatekeeping policy. Now, Agnes was born on a farm in the southwest at Whithorn in, in Wigtonshire. And in 1924, she went to Liverpool to work as a domestic servant. She had an aunt there. She worked in private service. And then in 1927, she moved with her employers to London. And it was through her friend and workmate, Gladys, that she put her name down for the United States because you, you had, there were quotas, of course, by after 1921, and you had to get your name in early. So this is what she said. By that time, you see, this friend, Gladys, had cousins home from Connecticut, from the States, and he was a farm manager there. And they told her they didn't know why she was working for seven and six weeks, or something like 10 more, I think. Um, yeah, and she should go out there. And immediately I said, oh, you put your name on the waiting list and I'll follow on. And so that's what we did. And her, um, her motive in going was clearly to have fun, which comes out very clearly in the next extract. I went there and then I sent my brother the address right away and he wrote back and said, what are you playing at? This is the fourth address you've had in two years. Why are you not staying in your jobs? But that was me. Um, one had to stay on duty until 10 o'clock, and you could do as you like after that because you got your key. Well, I went to more musicals and more theatre 
and more every <laughs> So she had great memories at 101 of what it had been like people watching in Broadway with her friend Gladys. So she, the, 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 I should have explained at the beginning of the quote, she, she said this was her fourth job and she wrote home and said to her brother, you know, I've moved house. And he says, what are you playing at? You, know, you, you won't stay in your, your jobs. Anyway, the, I asked her about what it was like um, during the Depression, and she made a, this is the final extract from, from uh, Agnes. She commented very interestingly about the family she worked for. They had decided, like everybody else, that they were cutting down expenses because they had to. They didn't have to. The chorus didn't need. But they, like a lot of other people like them who lost everything in the uh, 1929 crash. But, um, uh, but the chorus thought they'd better look as though they had lost. And so they closed the country house just then. So it's, it's very much um, images of the great Gatsby, I think. But I, I thought it was an interesting comment by Agnes and a, a different perspective on the Depression. The Corys didn't need to close things up, but they, it was, uh, they thought they'd better give the appearance of being impoverished. OK, let's move on uh, to the, the post-war period then. Um, in making the, the transition from the 1920s and 1930s to the era after the Second World War, I'd like to introduce you to a family whose experiences uh, straddle uh, both eras. This is the Murray family from the Isle of Lewis, uh, pictured in 2005. Um, on the right front, you have Callum, the late Callum. On the, the left, his, his late wife, Jessie. Uh, the two elderly ladies at the back are Callum's sisters, Chrissy and Cathy. And the person in the middle is just a friend who brokered the, 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 the meeting. Um, now, before the First World War, Callum, Chrissy and Cathy's father had worked on grain elevators at Thunder Bay, what was then called Fort William, out in Canada. He did some, came back for war service, um, married back in the Isle of Lewis, and then re-emigrated in 1924, this time to Prince Rupert on the West Coast. And in 1927, he was joined um, by his wife and the family, um, including a number of other siblings. But he was killed in an industrial accident in 1932, and his widow brought the children, Callum and Cathy and Chrissy and the others, back to Lewis uh, to be brought up. But the interesting point is, I think, that the wanderlust gene had been inherited because Callum spent 30 years as a transatlantic commuter. Between 1953 and 1983, he would spend six months of the year out in Canada freighting grain on the Great Lakes, and when the um, seaway froze up and the lakes froze up in the winter, he would come back to Lewis to be with Jesse and the children. And he was by no means alone in doing that. This regular sort of transatlantic commuting was very common. Um, so he was following in his father's footsteps in, in a way. Now, meanwhile, um, Cathy, the one with the red cardigan, uh, she opted, well, she didn't opt to go to New Zealand. It was actually quite fortuitous um, the way that she ended up uh, in, in New Zealand. And I'll let her tell her own tale. So anyway, while I was over in Germany, where she worked with a naffy, I met a New Zealand girl. But meanwhile, I thought I was aiming for Canada all the time, and I wrote Canada House. Got no answer. So this Betty, she says to me, you go to New Zealand, you see what they're doing there. So to cut a long story short, they, they um, answered right off and all I had to do was fill the, the forms and you could go over there for £10. And I was, of course, she had to work with them for two years, which was the best 10 years, uh, £10 I ever spent. 
So she was a New Zealand 10 pound palm. When I'm using that quote uh, with, with uh, students or other groups and I'm trying to illustrate why I like oral testimony, I say, well, if you just read that in a book and you read it was the best 10 pounds I ever spent, you won't get the sense of how excited she was even you know, several decades later about um, how wonderful it was to have got to New Zealand for 10 pounds. Anyway, she would have been there yet if her mother um, hadn't hauled her home after 16 years to uh, look after her. Um, Kathy clearly regarded emigration as adventure, not as exile. The next clip that you're going to hear is from a lady called Ina MacDonald. Um, she's also from North Uist. That's Ina pictured about three years ago. Now, Ina was consumed with homesickness. And one of the most striking features of the interview I did with her was the frequency with which she reverted to that theme of homesickness. Um, she emigrated to Australia as a newlywed in uh, 1961. She came out on a 10-pound passage. She went back to Scotland in 1964 in the hope that um, a visit home would assuage the homesickness. It didn't. She came back to Australia for 10 months, and then she returned permanently to North Uist in 1965. Now, it's, when we played this earlier, it was very quiet, but... I hope we can hear it because just the anguish in her voice, even after all this time, I think is quite striking. I was homesick before I even went. It was crazy, absolutely crazy. I should never have, I should never have gone. I was forever homesick, homesick, you know. Um, I can remember when I, when I came back here and Angus was born and then it came to the time of going back. And I was dreading going back, absolutely dreading it. And I can still remember, I think everybody in the village came down to say cheerio to me. When just going out the gate there, and I looked behind me, my father was running after the car. Oh, I nearly just said, stop, I'm not going. I remember when I went on board and all oh, my appetite just disappeared. I couldn't eat. I lost a stone in about 10 days and the stewards were so nice and they said, oh, is there nothing I can give you? You must eat, you must eat. And I says, I'm, I'm not hungry, you know, homesickness. Oh, I was just miserable. Oh, I was just wishing I was back. You know, I didn't want to go. I, could, I, was, I was seeing my father run after that car. Oh, I was just, it was just awful. And that was Ina speaking in 2011 about events of the mid-1960s, and it was still very painful. I mean, we were both sitting in her kitchen, we were both crying when she was um, telling me that, that uh, those memories. Now, the £10 passage scheme that took Ina and her husband to Australia um, accounted as you, as you well know, for around one and a half million British emigrants between 1947 and, and 1972. We've seen it from the emigrants' eye view, most recently there from Ina. Um, but I'd like to introduce you now to one of the recruitment agents who interviewed people like Ina, albeit at a, a slightly later date. Um, this is Gordon Ashley, who from 1969 to 1972 worked for the Australian Department of Immigration, um, based in Glasgow, and he single-handedly interviewed and processed applicants um, or applications uh, mainly from the west of Scotland. And as you'll hear, it was hard work. And this was repeat work where you were 
asking questions as to the motivation of people and also trying to give information at the same time and trying to crowd that in to that um, period of time, that time slot. <clears throat> Given that they also had other written information, but no one could be sure how much a person had actually read or not. So it was um, a, not an easy thing to do. and. I remember at one stage, once in Glasgow, doing 44 interviews in a row without uh, anyone not turning up. And it was when people did not turn up that you had a break, could catch your breath, and could actually write um, uh, some sort of um, reasonable report. I think that contextualises Ina's story a little bit. It perhaps explains why some people who maybe should never have been selected uh, slipped through the net because just the, the workload of the agents was so phenomenal and Gordon said that the main reason for people going was economic and here he tries on his Scottish accent. Most of it was um, can I get a decent job here um, or uh, uh, we want a better life for our kids. It was that kind of motivation. Now, Gordon Ashley's experience is related to late 1960s, early 1970s. I want to backtrack now for a, a couple of clips from the 1950s and 1960s um, in which the emigrants explain what it was that triggered um, the decision to leave. I mentioned earlier uh, poor housing conditions, rationing, bad weather. Well, I don't think I mentioned the bad weather, but I'll mention, <laughs> I'll mention it now. Um, all that had a part to play on the, the negative side. And the lady from whom you're going to hear now is Cathy Donald. Um, she and her parents emigrated to Dunedin in New Zealand from, near, from Burnt Island, which is near Edinburgh, um, in 1953. And they emigrated for better prospects. And there's Cathy. My father had two aims. He wanted me to be educated, which for someone who was really quite a chauvinist, that was a huge thing for him. But he, had a, he believed in education that he hadn't got. He didn't see that I would get to university in Scotland. It, ten years later it might have been different, I think. And the other thing was that housing was a difficulty because we had this little extra box room and only one child. The co it was a council flat. They said that we don't, we're not going to rehouse you because you've got enough space. So the housing issue came up uh, time and again. It was actually very difficult to get council houses in Britain um, after the war. Um, now, a year before Cathy and her parents emigrated, 23-year-old uh, Annie Matheson left the Isle of Lewis for Detroit. And her story is um, a familiar one. There she is. Uh, while growing up in the village of Col on the east side of Lewis, she'd been fascinated by stories of the United States told by neighbors whose sons and daughters and siblings had emigrated. And she contrasted her meager wages in a, in a clothing store with the apparently untold riches of the States, where she said the perception was that earnings were ten times that amount. And again, she talked about post-war blues and rationing um, in Britain, and that reinforced her decision to spread her wings. But she didn't want to go anywhere else except the States. This is what she said. I never wanted to leave Lewis except unless I would go to America. I didn't want to go to Glasgow or London to work. I'd rather stay here, but America was first. Oh, everything was better than I could ever imagine. I can't think of anything that was... Uh, I, I thought the American accent was so lovely. 
Well, uh, just, just a couple of words of explanation there. Um, when she says, I'd rather stay here, I interviewed her when she was back in Lewis. Um, she, she comes back regularly. But I don't know um, if you could pick up from her the way she spoke. She's been in Detroit since 1953, but she sounds as if she has just left the Isle of Lewis. She has not lost her Scottish accent. Um, and well, she says she thought the American accent was so lovely, but she didn't pick it up. <laughs> Um, okay, uh, she, uh, I could tell you more tales about her, but um, a decade later, Joan and, Joan and John Noble left Aberdeen for Vancouver Island um, when they were infected with a restlessness that Joan Noble said was prevalent in the 1960s. So here's John and, Jean, uh, John and Joan Noble pictured outside their home in uh, Victoria. We came not because we needed to. John was deputy of a school in Aberdeen and we had a lovely li life in Aberdeen but I don't know there was some kind of restlessness in the year in the 60s a lot of people came to Canada mm -hmm. in the middle 60s and the weather had become a, absolutely abysmal we could never get a nice summer my children were never outside playing the way I wanted them to be and then by this quite extraordinary serendipity just as we were talking about that in November of 1965 the Canadian government sent immigration officers okay. to Britain. Too far. Um, but the weather comes, the weather comes into it there, and the weather comes into a lot of emigrant testimony. And I had one lady say to me uh, when I was interviewing in New Zealand, everything was grey, the people were grey, the streets were grey, the houses were grey. Um, and then, interestingly, last week in um, Queensland, um, one of my interviewees said, used exactly the same terms. He said, everything was grey. So, greyness comes into it. Um, six years later, uh, Shona Howarth came to New South Wales. Now, sometimes the decision as to where you went was uh, serendipitous or fortuitous. Um, her first goal had been Western Canada, where she had relatives. But she wouldn't have come to New South Wales if it hadn't been uh, for the £10 passage. I just thought, oh, it would be nice to go to Canada. And I actually applied to, I was going to go on my own, and I applied to go to Canada and Australia. Uh, and Australia was just as a second choice. I really wanted to go to Canada. Uh, and I got into both. And while my application was being processed, my cousin, who was 19 at the time, said that she'd like to come with me. So she applied to go to both. And Canada uh, turned her down because she, she wouldn't have been 21. Australia took her, so that's how I ended up going to Australia. So, the accidental emigrant. Um, now, not surprisingly, given that they're a self-selecting group, and most of my interviewees have been talking positive, positively about their experiences. Um, some of those who came to Australia and were initially accommodated in, in migrant hostels uh, found that the reality didn't quite match the rhetoric. I was talking earlier about the freezing cold conditions in the uninsulated cabins in Canada. Well, as I say, the opposite applied here. But the ne my next interviewee was not too critical. This is Sandra Monroe. Um, Sandra was seven uh, when she emigrated with her parents from Paisley near Glasgow in 1965 um, after her father got a job in the Port Kembla Steelworks. So this is Sandra talking about the hostels. My mum wasn't too happy with the accommodation, <laughs> which was to what she described as a tin, tin shack cut in half. And we settled in the hostel for two years with kind of the waiting list for a council house. Obviously people with more money could buy a house and moved from the hostel because, like I say, I really enjoyed the hostel, I enjoyed the experience, but there was people that just wouldn't 
stay there. We all move to the same. Um, okay, that just I'm, I'm drawing towards a close now, so don't worry. Um, Alice Moffat was another emigrant to Australia. She came out from Fife, the county of Fife, or the kingdom of Fife, in 1967 with her husband and children. And she found a well-established network of people from her home area. And I think that helped her to settle in. I think one of Ina MacDonald's problems was that she had no network. And I can come back in question and answer if you, if you like to why I think Ina didn't settle. Um, but Alice Moffat was in no doubt that Australian living conditions surpassed those in Scotland. So here she is telling us a about oh, it was definitely well ahead. It was well ahead of Scotland without... I, I don't even... Well, I don't know anything about England, but our friends felt the same way, and they came out from Bradford, and they said it was, you know, that's what got them in, was a high standard of living when we first came to Australia. Couldn't believe it, you know. So... I'll come back to her for another couple of quotes just as we finish. And this is just to, to round it off. Um, I said at the beginning I was going to talk about identities and identifications. Um, the emigrants' verdict on whether their experience was one of um, adventure and opportunity or of exile and disillusionment depended to a large extent on their personal circumstances and their personalities and whether their attitude towards their emigration was to adapt or to integrate or to assimilate. Um, those whose identities and roots remained in Scotland were more likely, I think, to be vulnerable to crushing homesickness, um, like Ina MacDonald. Um, those who integrated still nurtured their Scottish identity, but they did it in, term, in, in the sense of that it was a more uh, cosmetic identification, something that they could don and shed uh, at will, rather than something that was an isolated and all-embracing, defining identity. So in other words, they made practical and cultural use of their ethnic um, networks to integrate, yet at the same time uh, remain distinctive. And here's one of my favourite examples for which we go back to Canada. And this is Murdo McIver, or McIver, another native of the Isle of Lewis. And since 1953, he's lived in Vancouver. He initially found himself there literally by accident when a back injury that he'd sustained during his days with the Merchant Navy uh, meant that he had to be under the surgeon's knife in, in the hospital in Vancouver. And when he got out of hospital, his ship had sailed. Uh, well, he, knew, he knew that was going to happen. He was quite happy about it. Um, he was able to stay in Vancouver and, he was, and get a job. He ultimately became chief firemaster in Vancouver Harbour. Um, he was able to do that thanks to the good offices of a couple of fellow Highlanders. Um, Murdo is a Gaelic speaker, he's a bard, he's a presenter in the, in the church, and for more than 50 years he's maintained strong connections with the Gaelic Society of Vancouver. Um, it was clearly important to him that in finding a home in the Pacific Northwest, it was a home where he was able to nurture his Scottish networks. And as, as, you, as you'll hear from this extract, um, Scotland's long-standing global diaspora was the trigger for his own desire to see the world. It was a great place to grow up. Everybody knew one another, and Old House was the centre of the village, and there was Cayleys there every night from Monday to Saturday. And I heard all the stories from Canada, Australia, South America, Falkland, South Africa, and a lot of the people that was there had gone back from Canada in the early 1930s because of the Depression. And some of them had gone back 
in the First World War and was gassed in France, so they didn't bother coming back to Canada. So the stories were fantastic. And I think that's maybe why I'm here today in Canada. I mean, that introduces a whole new theme which we haven't time to go into, which is the story of return migration. So that's for another day. Um, okay, well, just to finish off with um, Alice Moffat and a couple of, well, a couple of quotes from Alice and one poem with which I want to finish. Um, Alice Moffat in Australia, like Murdo McIver in Canada, has put down roots in her adopted land, but she still cherishes her Scottish identity. She still has... Uh, pangs of homesickness um, and homesickness can be triggered by familiar rites of passage being celebrated in an unfamiliar environment notably uh, Christmas and New Year and I've got one quote about each the first Christmas because we got there in November and the first Christmas oh, oh it was terrible we got some friends to come over to the flat because we were in a flat so of course I'm doing everything that you're doing Scotland and England, you know, roast potatoes, mince pies, you know, all the trimmings, Christmas dinner. Nobody could eat it. It was too hot. That was pretty upsetting. But I'll tell you something, even after all this year, all these years in Australia, I still don't like Christmas. It's not the same. You know, it's too hot. And then about New Year, she said, oops, no, sorry. Um... Even to this day, I still get homesick at New Year. Especially when you watch the tattoo and things like that. <laughs> yes, still play the Scottish music and... But the thing is now, all the grandkids are there now, you know what I mean? But some, I, I've got Scottish friends that said, oh, I don't think about Scotland, you know. No, no. But I do. My husband and I both do. She didn't have hiccups and neither did I. Um, the, the funny sound there is, uh, it's been... Um, dulled down fortunately but I was doing it on Skype and for some reason the, the, the Skype call appeared to have hiccups okay my, my final quote um, is from a lady in, who went to Canada for three years in the 1950s um, homesickness and nostalgia can strike unexpectedly even among those who fulfilled their goal of adventure and capitalized successfully on the opportunities that were offered by emigrating and I think perhaps it is expressed most eloquently in this poem with which I'll close. It's a poem by a lady called Margaret Gillis Brown. Uh, she spent three years on the Canadian prairies in the 1950s before she returned to Scotland with her husband to take up the family farm. And here's Margaret. Exile. It's no easy option, exile from land of birth and heritage. Whether it be self-imposed or forced for whatever reason, it's not easy. The lilt of a voice, the trick of a vision, the touch of a hand, and transportation is immediate. Back to wild seas, greening fields, the rushing burn, love of a motherland. You thought, with the great sea sailed, the umbilical cord cut, you would be free from persecution, perhaps, 
or living in a tight inherited box? You would bleed for a while, surely, tears of real salt. But this new land would become your land, her people, your people, surpassing all others. Tell me, what is the whisper? Thank you.